Welcome to episode 10 of Advocacy in Court. This is part 2 of Pitfalls and Opportunities with Opened and Closed Questions in Examination in Chief. Our first subject is how to ask questions so as to have a witness give evidence of what they can recollect of a person, a thing, or a place. It's important that, as always, you make it clear to the witness and the listeners as to your topic. So let's say that in this case our topic is what the witness can recollect about a particular person, Jack. Now a common, very common mistake by questioners is to use the questioner's usual way of describing people as the template for asking the witness to describe what they saw. The problem with applying your own method of describing people to someone else is they may not share it. We all have our own idiosyncratic ways of remembering people. And for that reason, your starting question is not something on the lines of was this person old or young? Or what colour hair did this person have? Or what was the body type of this person? All such questions are likely to make the witness fail. And the witness will be very much aware of his or her failure. The solution is so easy. Let the witness guide you, not the other way around. So when you're asking a witness what they recollect about some person whom they saw, your question is, What is it that you now remember about the person who was at such and such a place or who you saw at such and such a place? What they tell you might surprise you. It'll surprise you less if you'd gone through this in your preparatory interview. But in any event, it might be, for example, that your witness remembers a particular piece of jewellery that the person had. And let's say that that was a bracelet on the person's arm. So if they tell you, I saw that Jack was wearing a bracelet on his arm. The follow-up question to that is, what can you tell us about that bracelet? Anything at all. And any detail that they can remember, whether it's size or colour, shape, some form of ornamentation, anything like that will reassure the witness that they do have a useful memory about that person. Now that the witness has that reassurance, you can then ask them questions that move from what they know along these lines. Having told us what you can recall about 
the piece of jewellery on Jack's wrist. Now, thinking carefully and taking yourself back to that moment, where else is there something on that person that you notice? It's a mistake to think that identification is necessarily of the face. Consider, for example, if Jack was arrested, and that having been arrested, the property that he had with him was taken off and put in a property bag. Now, that includes a bracelet that matches the description given by your witness. That's a good identifying piece of evidence. Now, as I said at the outset, this approach, that is, being guided by what the witness actually remembers, can apply not only to the description of a person, but also to a thing or a place. For example, if a car goes past them, they may remember things about a car that the questioner would never remember. But that's not the point, nor is it the objective. We move now to another subject, which I can describe as doing whatever you can so that you and the witness give your evidence in such a way that the present sensory experiences of the audience, fact finders and others in the courtroom are engaged by the manner in which you ask the question and what the witness says in answer. Now, I'm going to give four examples of this. One is the level of lighting that the witness experienced at the time when they observed something which is now relevant. Two is how a witness describes distances within a courtroom. Third, is what you do to ensure that when a witness gives evidence about direction, they give directions that the present audience can understand and will not get wrong. And last, how the choice of words that you use will significantly affect the nature of the answer that you get from your witness. Starting with lighting. There can often be an issue as whether the light was sufficient that a person could see what they claimed to be able to see. So, for example, it's a common technique in cross-examination to cross-examine so as to imply that the level of lighting was so low that the witness couldn't have seen what they say that they saw. Now, to have a witness asked, was the lighting dull or bright or in between, something of that sort, is, when you think about it for a moment, quite useless. What everybody wants to know is whether the lighting experienced by the witness at the time of the event they're describing was or was not good enough for them to see what they said that they saw. The obvious comparator is the level of lighting in the courtroom. So, one can always say to a witness, thinking back to the lighting at the scene, 
What can you say about their lighting in this courtroom now as to whether it was as bright as um, what we have now, less bright, much less bright? And then the witness can give you an answer that says, well, uh, the lighting was not as bright as in this courtroom. However, it was bright enough that I would be able to see, and I was able to see, the person who was the same distance from me then as the distance from this witness box where I am now and the door into the public gallery of this courtroom. The importance of that answer is, is that all those attending to the answers can look and experience exactly the same distance as the witness has just described. All of them see and experience the same thing. What is often done, and it's a bad technique, is to ask a witness as to what was the approximate distance they were from such and such, and they'll give a distance depending on where this case is being run, either in yards, feet and inches, or metric centimetres and metres. The problem with giving such a distance is, first of all, that the witness is almost certainly wrong, but we don't know whether they're understating or overstating the distance. And the related problem is, is that everybody in the audience um, will be introducing their own level of error on measurements onto that uh, error-driven estimate that the witness has just given. So we have error on error. It's for this reason that wherever distances can be encompassed by two points within a courtroom, that you always have the witness give their distances by references to two such points in the courtroom. And then you, as the advocate, immediately state on the record, Your Honour, I have a tape measure. I will measure that distance at the next break and we'll put it on the transcript. This is important. Because if there's an appeal, uh, those sitting on the appeal will not be in the same courtroom. They will not know what particular furniture is being referred to. However, if there is an accurately measured distance, that is something that everybody can agree on. Where rather longer distances are being referred to, then depending on what season, such distances can be given by reference to the length of a playing field, the length of a swimming pool, the length of a tennis court, the length of a cricket pitch, whatever works within that community. Turning now to direction, never refer to compass points in a courtroom. Simple reason for this. There's an old saying that goes, never eat soggy wheat picks, which tells you that we go north, east, south, west. However, there are a lot of people who reverse east, west. That means that if a person gives compass points, there is the distinct possibility that part of the audience will be 180 degrees out. That's an error with which you do not wish to have to deal. Fortunately, Once again, the answer is simple. 
most courts still have traditional clocks somewhere in the court courtroom on a wall with the numbers from 12 through to 11 on them. And you can use those numbers to have a witness say, well, by reference to that clock on the wall, I was facing towards three or I was facing towards seven. And then everybody can look at the same clock and everybody gets the right direction. Finally, in this episode, a reminder that we've known for the best part of 30 years that the choice of language does affect the answer we get. So if you ask a witness how close was something, or instead you ask them how far away was the same something, then there will be a significant difference in the answers given by the witness to those two questions referring to the same item. It's not just close and far. The same effect can be seen if you use the words quick or slow. So, for example, a keen prosecutor prosecuting on a drive at speed dangerous would be asking witnesses how fast was the car going, whereas the defence would be saying how slowly was the car going. This is yet another instance of how important it is as advocates that we think carefully about the words that we're going to use. The choice has consequences for the success of our advocacy. In the next episode, we'll be looking at the two important techniques. One is known as confess and avoid, and the other is putting you into the scene. That is, you join the witness at the scene in the manner of a fly on the wall in order to be able to work out what questions need to be asked and from what perspectives should they be asked. As always, I hope you'll join us for the next episode. Until then, goodbye.